I invite you to turn to Psalm 65. Psalm 65. This is a psalm and a song of David. It was apparently sung. We'll try to sing parts of it in a few minutes with words shifted around to fit our English common meter. This is a psalm of David, and I find that it's broken into three parts. And I'll describe those parts just very briefly, and then I'll read it to you. Be looking for the first four verses, verses 1 through 4, as evidence of God's choosing and God's blessing and God's authority. I suggest that the second uh, section, uh, verses 5 through 8, uh, just describe God's power and his authority to direct the events of human relationships and human events. I would suggest that the final part of the psalm, the last half, verses 9 through 13, just break into praise, like Job does often, about just describing the glorious power of God and his wisdom in the water cycle, in weather, in mountains, in seas, and his authority and control over nature and the way he directs nature. Let me read Psalm 65 to you, and please delight in these words. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. By terrible things in righteousness wilt thou answer us, O God of our salvation, who art the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of them that are afar off upon the sea, which by his strength setteth fast the mountains, being girded with power, which stilleth the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the people. They also that dwell in the uttermost parts are afraid at thy tokens. Thou makest the outgoings of the morning and evening to rejoice. Thou visitest the earth and waterest it. Thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God, which is full of water. Thou preparest them corn when thou hast so provided for it. Thou waterest the ridges thereof abundantly. Thou settlest the furrows thereof. Thou makest it soft with showers. Thou blessest the springing thereof. Thou crownest the year with thy goodness, and thy paths drop fatness. They drop upon the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered over with corn. They shout for joy. They also sing. Amen. Amen. Psalm 65, ending up a very cheerful psalm. But I want to focus on the first half, and especially the first four verses. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion. 
does God know where to find praise? When he looks down from heaven and his eyelids try the children of men, he beholds the inhabitants of the earth, does he know where to go get some praise? When he seeks such that will worship him in spirit and truth, does he know where to come? Does he know where to look? I trust that he does. Praise is waiting for him. He just has to take a peek. He just has to utter the word, and we burst forth, hopefully, in our hearts and in this congregation, we burst forth with praise unto thee, O God, not to anyone else, not to ourselves, unto thee, O God, in Zion. Let's make sure he knows where to come when he wants some praise. And unto thee shall the vow be performed. Have you ever vowed anything? Yes. Perhaps that's something we should consider more often when we are in trouble. David did. He made vows when he was in trouble, and he made sure he paid them. But even if you haven't made vows when you're specifically in trouble in a practical sense, every one of us has made vows, perhaps, when we were baptized. That's right. We made vows to arise and walk in newness of life. We made a vow to put away the sins of our flesh. We made a vow to make ourselves as practically and as much as we can a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, burial and resurrection. And of that day to come. We made vows. Perhaps we made vows when we joined this church. We made commitments to each other. A vow to serve and to love each other. We've made vows. Perhaps we made vows when we married a sister in the Lord. Or a brother in the Lord. We made vows to love that spouse. And to lead that spouse, you men. In the presence of all these people. And in the presence of God and the holy angels. We made those vows. We've made some vows. Let's pay up, and let's do so with great praise and rejoicing. God is looking for us to. Verse 2, O thou that hearest prayer. I'm reminded of some other times in the Psalms and other times in the Bible when God was titled by a person based on their individual experience with him. I think of Hagar, Genesis sixteen thirteen, And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Amen. Incredible, amazing. This is Abraham's God, not Hagar's, you would think. But she labeled him, Thou God seest me. Right. Have you named God, perhaps, in your life? Psalm 17, 7 says, Show thy marvelous love and kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them that put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. That's a big kind of, in quotations or paraphrase, if you will, ascribing those actions of salvation to God, to thou. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. So I, I, would, I would suggest to us that we should, uh, in our own minds, our own lives, pick ways that God has shown his salvation to us, and let's label him in those ways of praise and adoration. O thou that established my goings in, in my career or whatever. O thou that saved my child from this disease, or O thou that that uh, put my feet upon a rock. I know Psalm 40 is one of Nathan's and mine and Jerry's favorites. Verse two, verse 3, Iniquities prevail against me, as for our transgressions thou shalt purge them away. We note that central to our consideration of God and our understanding of our position before him are two things. One, an awareness of sin a deep abiding guilt and awareness that we are sinners before him. However, equally true and equally stated here and equally important is that thou shalt purge them away. So an overwhelming eternal guilt for our sin 
without the second half of the verse is not right. It's not complete. Thou shalt purge them away. So central to our understanding of God and our relationship to him is understanding that he purged us from those sins. Verse 4. I wish, I hope, I wish that you could understand the gold that's in verse 4. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee. I'm reminded of John 6, some verses from there. Let me quote these phrases to you. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. No man can come to God except God draws him. That specifically excludes all strangers from coming to God. Okay? A few verses earlier in that chapter, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me is a phrase. Okay? That distinctly and specifically includes every single person that is a child of God. So no stranger will come, but also every single person that's supposed to come will. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. That is the assurance of mercy and the confidence that if we feel ourselves drawn to God, that we should and we will not be cast out. We should run to him. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee. Why? That he may dwell in thy courts. David is including himself in that category when he says, We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Do you find yourself enjoying and being satisfied with the goodness of being in his holy courts and his temple? Is this not one of the chiefest joys? Is this not one of the sources of the source of one of the chiefest ends and benefits of your life? Of being in the holy courts of God and dwelling in his presence in, in, in this body, praising him and relating to one another. By terrible things in righteousness wilt thou answer us. We think of terrible usually in a negative sense, a bad, scary thing. However, the own ver- that own verse excludes that primary definition. By terrible things in righteousness wilt thou answer us, O God of our salvation, who are the confidence. So if we see God being terrible, it can't be in a way that causes us not to be confident in him, can it? Because that verse says he is the God of our salvation and our confidence. So we understand that verse in ways such as he is terrible to the kings of the earth and that he holds the kings and judges to a high standard. We also note that he is terrible to his enemies because we notice, uh, we we, uh, rejoice at the way he treated Egypt. He gave Egypt for his children's ransom, says. He destroyed that nation. He was terrible to Egypt. But he was absolutely wonderful to the to his children. Right. I trust that the rest of the uh, the psalm makes a lot of sense. I, I love uh, verse eight. How you know thou makest the outgoings of the morning and the evening to rejoice. When's the last time you saw a great sunrise or a sunset, and just broke forth in praise and singing to uh, to God that created that painting that uh, that moves with all its infinite shades of colors. We can't we can't predict it or control it or duplicate it. Certainly today he's visiting the earth with water. But I want to focus on that first half of that psalm and trust that those, uh, those comments are of some benefit to you. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. Let's know him and let's praise him. Amen.